All right. Well, uh, I don't know how many of you decided to join us at our, our Good Friday service last Friday night. Uh, for those of you who are here, you were treated to an unforgettable experience on Good Friday. And uh, I don't necessarily mean that in the uh, spiritual sense, although I hope God spoke to you. I mean, we almost burned the church down on Good Friday. Uh, for those of you who were not here months ago, a few people on our team started talking about a great idea we had for a Good Friday service where Peter, uh, where we talk about the part in the Gospels where Peter denies Jesus three times. And in the, in the Bible, we read that Peter does this around a fire while he's trying to stay warm. So we had this idea. What if we do our Good Friday service outdoors in the grove? And what if we build a decent-sized bonfire in the middle of the grove that as we tell the story, everyone is staring at the fire or they're looking at the stage over a fire? And, and so we talked about it. And uh, we thought we had a way to safely do a fire. It involved using one of those metal fire pits that kind of is raised up off the ground. And we got there early and we tested it, took some time to make sure that everything was gonna be okay. And we started the service and all was fine until about 20 minutes in, embers started catching wood chips that were under the metal fire pit on fire. Derek is up on stage leading worship, and the fire has started to expand outside the fire. Uh, fortunately, we have a fire extinguisher right up front, just in case something goes wrong. And Matt, who you just saw up here, our executive pastor, he grabs the fire extinguisher, starts to put it out. We get a giant cloud of smoke, and you gotta love Derek. He's a pro. He just keeps leading worship right through it, as if it's like the fire of the Holy Spirit that has come down or, you know. Um, I get up and I stop him and uh, I and hundreds of others just watch while Matt and some other people try to put out the fire and I basically just stall up there so that they can get the fire out before I start the message. I mean, I'm celebrating people's anniversaries up on stage. We're just doing anything while they're getting the fire out and as much as our initial plan was ruined and it was scary for a couple of seconds there, I loved every second of it. <laughs> I have this weird thing in me that gets great joy out of watching something fail epically. Uh, we, we, we have a few values around here at Crosswinds, two of which are everything is an experiment and playing it safe is risky. And, and, and sometimes I think if we're not trying things that go very bad every once in a while, then we are playing it too safe. We're not trying hard enough. Uh, we're not getting creative enough. Anyway, that said, we do not mean playing it safe with your personal safety is one of our values. <laughs> Uh, we don't want to mess with that or experiment with that. And I think we owe those of you who are in attendance an apology. And I wanted to make sure you really accepted this apology. So I reached out to a friend and I asked him to do the apology for us. Would you watch this? Hey, Crosswinds, it's Ed here. And your good friend, Chris Colley, is very, very sorry that you almost burnt down the grove last week. Very sorry. Uh, it was honestly a mistake and it won't happen again and he's definitely learnt his lesson. Fire safety is very important to all of us. Again, Chris is very deeply sorry. Thank you. Apology accepted. All right. Right now, you're probably wondering why I would spend $40 on an Ed Sheeran impersonator to apologize for me. You realize that was an impersonator, right? <laughs> the reason that I would have somebody apologize for me is as we kick off this series, it's because 
There's a growing trend when it comes to apologies. People who have a hard time saying, I'm sorry, the trend is to get somebody else to do it for you. Have you seen this? An entire industry has sprung up around saying, I'm sorry for you so that you don't have to say, I'm sorry yourself. So we've got greeting cards like this one. Um, uh, we all love the bulldogs. Or like this one. Or like this one. And you can, you can send somebody I'm sorry cookies now, like these cookies right here, which is a great way to say I'm sorry. And you can hire singing telegrams to show up somewhere and sing an I'm sorry to somebody for you. And then of course you've got Cameo, where we got our fake Ed Sheeran, but you can actually get real celebrities to send a video to your loved one to say I'm sorry for you. We went with Ed Sheeran because I'm cheap. Uh, we were gonna get Kevin from The Office, but he was $350. And, uh, <laughs> I bring all of this up to you this morning because as we kick off this very, very short series we're doing called Sorry Not Sorry, I think it's important that we recognize how difficult sorries have become. And, and sometimes they're hard because we don't know the words to say, and sometimes they're hard because we are embarrassed, we don't want to have to face the person that we wronged, but, but do you know what the hardest part of apologizing is? When you don't think that you did anything that requires an apology, and you think the apology is due to you. Um, do you remember as a kid when your parents would make you apologize to your brother or your sister? Tell your brother you're sorry. And, and, and you would be like, but I didn't do anything. And they would be like, tell him you're sorry. And the words would come out of your mouth. You would reluctantly say, sorry, like that. They'd come out of your mouth, but they wouldn't reflect what was really in your heart. And I wonder if that's another reason that we struggle with I'm sorry, because we sometimes realize they're incongruent with how we really feel. Or that's why we have trouble accepting apologies, because we're not sure they really mean it. You're just saying what you're saying to get out of trouble with me, and as the one who's wronged, we think, but I have a right to be troubled. You see why sorries can be really complicated. Well, the good news for us is that the Bible helps us figure out what a healthy I'm sorry really look like. And it actually goes beyond the words. It gets to our hearts. And in the next few weeks, we're going to explore what it has to say about how we can be better at this. And today, I want to talk to you about one of the biggest things that keeps those words from getting out of our mouth. The reason why it's so hard to say, I'm sorry. And I'm going to show you this thing that keeps I'm sorry from happening as we see it in Genesis 3. The first time an I'm sorry was ever needed in the history of the world. Uh, the story begins with a man and a woman in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. They're told by God, don't eat fruit from this one tree. If you do, you will die. Things go well. They don't eat from it. They live a great life. But one day, Eve gets told by a snake, God's not being quite honest. Go ahead, eat from it. Nothing will happen to you. She does. Adam sees this, he says, oh, I'll take a bite of that. And in that moment, immediately their eyes are opened and they see that they're naked. Something has changed. Before they were naked, it was no problem, but now they have this shame about themselves, their bodies. God never intended them to feel shame about their bodies, but now they do, and so they run and hide. Now I want you to see what happens. God goes into the garden to get some time with Adam and Eve, and they're missing, they're hiding. And so, take a look at verse nine, we'll put it up. God says, where are you? And Adam replied, I heard you were in the garden and I was naked, so I hid. Look at verse 11. And God said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? In other words, Adam, you've been caught red-handed. I know you did something. There's only one thing you're not supposed to do. I told you not to do this thing, and you've done it. Okay, now here's where this gets good. You ready? Verse 12. The man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. God, I know you think that I did something wrong, that I'm responsible uh, for the fruit that I wasn't supposed to eat, but I'm going to pass blame to the next person down. This is her fault. And right here, right here, we see this thing that we do that keeps us from being able to say these really important words, I'm sorry. We don't own what we've done. We blame somebody or something else. Okay, the story's not over. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve says, I'm not the one who did something wrong. This isn't my responsibility. It's the snakes. He started it. Don't look at me. And what we see in Genesis 3, the first time anybody ever does anything wrong in this world, they immediately look to shift responsibility off of themselves, put it on someone else. They look to place blame. All right, will you say this word with me? Blame. Can we be honest? We all do this. About 10 years ago, uh, Andrea and I and the girls decided we were going to take a two-week road trip and drive up the coast and kind of take the kids through the redwoods and, and, and do a little bit of camping and just get out of the heat. Well, about a week before we left, I bought one of those uh, GPS units, which at the time were still kind of new. I bought one of these things to be our guide. It's crazy to think about now because we all just pull up maps on our phones or, or you might even have maps on your dashboards of your car. But at the time, these standalone GPS units, they were the thing. They were the way you might navigate on a trip. And, and so I, I bought one and I put it in the minivan that we had. And uh, we tried it out for a few days driving around here in the valley and it worked great. And then I just kind of forgot about it, assuming it would be there in the van when it came time to take our road trip. Okay, fast forward to the day that we were leaving, I loaded up the car. I loaded everything up, luggage, sleeping bags, stuff for s'mores, everything, and, and I got the front dashboard area all set. I've got my chargers and my music ready to go. I got a playlist for the Redwoods, and we leave. We get about 15 minutes down the road, and Andrea says, oh, the GPS, let's fire that thing up. And I said, yeah, put it in the window, would you? I think it's in the glove compartment. And she opens up the glove compartment and she says, uh-oh, there is no GPS. And Andrea says to me, why didn't you bring it? You're the one who loaded up the car. Blame. I say, are you kidding me? I'm the one who left it in your car a week ago. It should never have been taken out of your car. Why did you remove it? Blame right back at her. Andrea says, I didn't move it. Clearly, you removed it. Throws it right back at me again. I say, I didn't remove it, which means it was stolen, which was what probably happened. You always forget to lock your car in the driveway at night. Boom, back at you. The blame is getting tossed back and forth, as were our tempers rising. Now, um, I'm not exaggerating. I, I, I could take the rest of this message and literally fill the rest of our time with the blame that got thrown around. And by the way, am I the only one whose family finds a way to get into an argument 10 minutes into a two-week vacation? Um, if you could have felt the tension that moment in the car over something as small as a $79 GPS. And here's the thing, when you've done that kind of blaming, it has some lasting effects. Partly, partly because every time we would make a wrong turn, I would say, that wouldn't have happened if I had that GPS right now. <laughs> but mostly because what happens when you blame is relationships get broken. 
Now, hopefully, there's forgiveness, right? And there's, there's a mending of the broken things. There's working to get past whatever happened. And, and that's not too difficult when the blame is over who forgot to put a, a GPS in a car. But, man, when that blame is over something bigger, like when the blame is between parents over whose fault it is that their child is having some significant problems, um, when there's a couple who, who are in pretty desperate financial straits and blame starts getting thrown back and forth in that moment, it will break your connection. Just imagine for a second what that did to Adam and Eve's relationship. Imagine the conversation that would have happened after they got kicked out of the garden. I would bet that Eve turned to Adam and said, dude, why did you throw me under the bus with God? Right? How long must it take to recover from watching what Adam said to God if you're Eve? And, and, and I'll say blame is not just a marriage thing. Blame happens at work. When a deadline gets missed, when a project just flat out fails, blame happens with your kids. Blame happens with your friends. Throwing blame will hurt your relationships. But we do it anyway. You know why? We do it because we think it's going to help solve a problem. If we can blame somebody or something and we can all recognize that that's the thing to blame, then maybe we can stop that thing from ever happening again. But it doesn't solve any problems. You know why? Because at its core... Blame ignores the truth that often you are the one who needs to own what happened. Um, there's a story I've heard about a CEO that had taken a new job and the outgoing CEO said to him, sometimes you're gonna make wrong choices. You will, you'll mess up. And when that happens, I have prepared three envelopes for you. I left them in the top drawer of the desk. First time it happens, open number one. The second time you mess up, open number two. The third time, open number three. For the first few months, everything goes fine. And then the CEO makes his first mistake. And so he goes to the drawer and he opens up envelope number one and the message reads, blame me. And so he does. This is the old CEO's fault. He made these mistakes. I inherited these problems. And everybody says, okay. And it works out pretty well. Things go well for a while, and so he, he makes a second mistake, and he, he goes to the drawer, and he opens up envelope number two, and this time he reads, blame the board. And so he does. It's the board's fault. The board has been a mess. I inherited them. They're the problem. And everybody says, okay, well, that makes sense. Things go well for a while. And then he makes his third mistake. And so he goes to the drawer, and he opens envelope number three up, and the message reads, prepare three envelopes. <laughs> See, it's impossible to keep what wrong thing happened from happening again if you won't at least admit that maybe you had something to do with what went wrong. But blame stops that kind of self-aware processing from happening dead in its tracks. And so the problems keep happening again and again and again because often blame blinds you from your role in what went wrong. And, and can I tell you what you're saying when you blame somebody else instead of saying I'm sorry? What you're really saying is, I am helpless. I have no control over what happens in my life or my world, my relationships, my family, my work. I'm helpless. I have no control over anything related to me, and so I am where I am. I am who I am because of you. And you blame enough people for what's wrong in your life, you'll actually start to believe that you're helpless, that you have no control. And I think that is such a sad place to live. Um, about 15 years ago in Lodi, you all know where Lodi is, just north of Stockton, uh, there was a guy whose car got backed into by a dump truck, a city dump truck. 
Uh, Lodi owns the dump truck, the city. And the dump truck backed right into it. The car was damaged so badly that this guy sued the city of Lodi for $3,600. Here's the catch. The dump truck that backed into the car, it was being driven by the same dude who owned that car. He accidentally backed into his own car. Okay, he admitted it was his fault, but because the city owned the truck, he thought that he had a case. Um, You'll be happy to know the court dropped the case saying, you cannot sue yourself. (laughs) But we are often our own worst enemies. And often we do damage. We shift the blame to somebody else. And and by doing that, we act helpless saying, it's not my fault. I have no choice in the matter. I have no control. And you might actually start to believe that. Well, to get better at saying I'm sorry, I think one of the things we need to do is see how we've been doing this blame thing. I'm convinced we're not always aware that we do this. And what I want to do with the rest of our time is share with you four ways we do this blaming thing and we don't take personal responsibility. Four things we say instead of I'm sorry that cause us to blame. And a few of these we actually see in the Genesis story. And as I go through these, I want you to be asking, is this one of the ways that I blame people? Is this this a method I use? And the first one, the first type of blame we see out there is just straight out accusation. This is what Adam does to Eve. It's what Eve does to the snake. Uh, Look again at Genesis 3.12. The man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's pretty clear, right? When something goes wrong, he says right away, the woman. Okay, let's just stop right there. Um, If your first response when something goes wrong is to mention someone else, you are about to accuse them. And so what we say, instead of I'm sorry, we fill in the blank. We say, so-and-so, fill in the blank there, did X, Y, Z. Um, I, I saw this with my kids when they were a lot younger. Something happens, uh, something would break, and there was a loud crash. Inevitably, this would happen all the time, and I would run into the room to see what the crash was, and I would look at Quinn, our oldest, and I would say, what happened? And the first word out of her mouth was, Kennedy. And and I know what's coming is accusation. Whenever your response starts with somebody else's name, instead of I'm sorry, I promise you you're about to accuse. Here's accusation, it's really simple. Something goes wrong, we don't wanna be the one to uh, to be at fault, and so we look to find somebody else to take the fall. Now you get that, I don't need to spend more time explaining this one, but my question is, do you do this? You'll find that, You use this type of blame when there's somebody in authority looking to find out what happened. So maybe a boss, uh, maybe a board you report to, maybe the government. Anyone where you might be worried about the consequences. When something goes wrong and it's your fault, do you panic or maybe not even panic but just want to deny responsibility? You point a finger, accusation. All right, here's the second way we blame. And this one's a little bit more complicated. We do it in the form of an excuse. Do you know that an excuse is really just another way of blaming somebody or something? Look again at verse 12 up there. I want you to see this. Adam somehow does the magnificent feat of accusation and excuse all in one line. This is incredible. The man said, the woman that you put here, God. The woman you put here with me. In other words, God, this is kind of your fault. I mean, wouldn't you agree that you had a hand in this? I didn't ask you to put her here with me. I didn't want to. And instead of I'm sorry... What we say when we say an excuse is, I couldn't avoid it. See, here's what an excuse is. Yes, I did something not so great, but I was forced to do it. 
I didn't have a choice in the matter. I was just responding to what somebody else did first. And I think we do this excuse type of blaming more than we do the accusing type. Because this one doesn't even feel like blame. This doesn't look like blame to the untrained eye. It just looks like an explanation. I'm just explaining. I'm not excusing. This is in a marriage when somebody says, yes, I am yelling, but it's your fault because you made me angry. You acted. I'm just reacting. This is when a college kid comes home from school, a bad semester at school, flunks out and says, you know what? It's not my fault. It's my professors. I had very boring professors this year. It's very common. You can do this and not even know that you're blaming. You can justify it because you're just being honest. But the truth is, it ends the same. Broken relationships, not realizing that you're part of the problem, and in this one especially, this helplessness that you don't have control over your own words, your own actions. You're just at the mercy of what other people do first. Do you find that when something goes wrong, you come up with excuses that are really just a way of blaming somebody else. Let me give you two more. Another way that we blame is through criticism. Now, criticism often feels like it's just airing your grievances, right? Someone just kind of mouthing off about things that irritate them, what they don't like about the world, what they don't like about certain people, and, and, and whether or not it's healthy and smart to be so critical, that's another sermon for another day, and I think you probably already know the answer to that anyway. But, but here's what happens a lot of times with that criticism, just that, that venting, that airing of grievances. Often you go from not liking something about somebody to having a moral problem with someone because of those things you don't like. By, by the way, this is when instead of saying, I'm sorry, we say, I don't like when. Basically, we turn the thing we don't like into a wrong, and in so doing, we blame somebody. So just, just a dumb example of this, all right? I have a friend whose neighbors like to park on the street, and they often have enough cars that they park right in front of his house. Okay, he's got a driveway. It's not like it puts him out. It just irritates him that they park in front of his house. And so he complains about it, and he whines about it. But, but the last time I spoke with him, he had turned it into a moral dilemma. How selfish of my neighbors that they would do this. How inconsiderate. It seems like if they were good people, they would stay on their side of the street. And you know you're free to criticize. Who am I to tell you not to share your opinions? But when those opinions turn into moral judgments about the character of somebody else, okay, that is blame. See, as we, as we mentioned last week on Easter, my world is not messed up because there are people in it who live differently than me or choose differently or think differently. It's messed up because I'm here too. All right, one more type of blame we do, punishment. Sometimes we blame to accuse, sometimes we blame to excuse, but sometimes we do it, we blame, because we want to punish someone. And this happens when somebody feels wrong, they're upset, and, and, and maybe you're the one who caused the problem, maybe you're not, but the person who's upset feels like somebody needs to pay. Like, that's the way that I'll feel better. That's the way justice will be done. Somebody paying. And the way that I make you pay is by blaming you. I don't know, maybe you do this. Maybe you've been the recipient of this. A lot of times this type of blaming is paired with name-calling a lot of mean words with this type of blame. This isn't somebody who's trying to get out of responsibility, really. It's somebody who's trying to make you hurt. And instead of I'm sorry, the person who's doing this is really saying I'm angry. 
And anger is okay, right? But the way we blame when we're angry, the words we say can be meant to punish. It's when a spouse says something like, you are such a nag, no wonder your last husband left you. It's when a coworker says, you're so hard to work with, no wonder you keep getting passed over for promotions. Sometimes we use blame as a punishment because we think justice needs to be done. It's gonna make us feel better about what happened. But here's the truth. Truthfully, blaming will not relieve you of your anger. It will amplify it. And blaming will not heal a relationship. It will hurt it. And blaming will not resolve the problem. It will intensify it. Any of these four, and and there are probably others, are ways that we shift responsibility off of ourselves so we don't have to say, I'm sorry. And it's why, it is why our relationships end up frayed and with tension, and it's why our conversations are often full of half-truths and trust gets broken. And next week, we're gonna talk about what it really looks like to apologize. But for today, can I give you something that you can begin implementing to stay away from this thing called blame? I wanna show you a very simple verse in in Galatians 6. It's so simple, you can memorize this whole verse by the time we leave today, all right? Galatians 6, 5, you ready? Each one should carry their own load. Do you say that with me? Let's read it together. For each one should carry their own load. I know that I haven't shown you the context of that, but Paul is writing to a church that's got some people who might be getting a little bit cocky and, and, and to think that when things go wrong, it's not them, it's somebody else. And so he says in Galatians 6, look, he says, if any of you think that you are something when you are not, you are deceiving yourself. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to somebody else. For each one should carry their own load. What that means is each person should be responsible for themselves. Now, that doesn't mean don't help other people. In fact, only one verse before this, Paul writes, carry each other's burdens. What this means is, worry less about the wrongs that everybody else has done. Own up to yours. Your part in the problem so that you can own up to your part in the remedy. When I do something wrong, I should own it. I should say, this is me. This is on me. I did what I did. I'm not going to blame it on you. I'm going to own it for me. Each one should carry their own load. As I've been speaking today, maybe you've been convicted about a load that you've been putting onto others. Maybe one of these four ways hit you and you're seeing you've been throwing blame to others. Maybe it's your family, somebody at work. Would you this week consciously make an effort to carry your own load? All right, will you stand with me? Let's pray together before we go. God, of course, We thank you for your forgiveness. We know, God, that you are at work changing us. And God, for the sake of our relationships, for the sake of our connection to you, give us the courage to take responsibility when it's ours, to not pass it on, and to know that even when we're we're holding the blame, you love us when we least expect it, we least deserve it. God, I'm excited to see how we change these patterns this series, how we go from inflating anger to calming it, from breaking trust to building it, and from hiding in the dark to walking in the light. And all God's people said,
Amen. Thank you for coming today. We'll see you next week.